At number 35 on the Spirit of Soho mural is our first person to be born in the 18th century. It's the romantic poet and husband of Mary, Percy Bysshe Shelley, generally known simply as Shelley. Bish, by the way, according to houseofnames.com, derived from Old English and originally meant a person who dresses in drab or murky colours, not a description we would normally associate with the Romantic poets. Born into privilege in 1792, the son of an MP, Shelley lived six months of his short life in two freezing rooms on Poland Street in Soho. His life is surrounded by myth and rumour, including the one that he deflowed Mary and the grave of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. To find out more about Shelley, I called up author, broadcaster and cultural theorist Ken Hollings. Could you explain who Percy Bysshe Shelley was? And I know he was part of this Romantics movement. So who was he and who were the Romantics? It's not Duran Duran, I know that much. A very good question, very good point. Um, Percy Bysshe Shelley uh, was one of the, the great Romantic poets, one of the great English Romantic poets, and possibly one of the greatest lyric poets that have, that have ever lived, certainly in the, in the Western canon. Romanticism, although it's a very, very large movement, I think it's, you could almost call it that in the sense that it's a very dynamic confluence of events. But Romanticism has different meanings at different times and also in different countries. Um, and Shelley represents the kind of almost the full early flowering of Romanticism. He comes after Coleridge and Wordsworth and Blake, and he has an enormous influence on poetry right into the 20th century through people like William Butler Yeats, who was a huge admirer. I, I stress the fact that he's a lyric poet because lyricism, I think, is a particularly strong element of English Romantic poetry, which is the which is founded on the belief that the real truth that, that can be communicated comes from feelings. It comes from emotions and passions. These can be trusted. William Wordsworth, one of Shelley's precursors, actually defined poetry as the overflowing of powerful emotion. This is truth. It's not, it's not, it hasn't been taken over and corrupted by politics or uh, society or rules or etiquette. It, 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 it springs up fully formed. And, and Shelley's poetry is very much this kind of outpouring of feeling. So the, this primacy of the emotions, does that mean that they're always the boss, as it were? If it's emotions versus reason, would you go with the emotions? Because I know that he was, in his life, he was... He was married twice, wasn't he? He was quite... The way he treated his first wife was not great by modern standards. And he, and, he, and he just... I think he followed his emotions. He, he found a younger person, his famous wife, Mary, as she turned out to Ooh. me, and basically dumped his, his ex-wife, his first wife. Was that, was that him following his emotions and being giving them primacy? It sounds a bit well, narcissistic. He, it does. And I think this is where we're, we're walking a very fine line, a historical line, in the sense that Shelley is writing in the wake of the French Revolution. He's writing in the wake of the Enlightenment. And certain ideas were held to be absolutely inviolately true. And one of them is the idea that humanity is born essentially innocent. Humanity is essentially good. Uh, it is only the restrictions of society and the church and business and law and dominance of all political dominance of all kinds. These are what corrupt us. And you can see where that can also lead to some quite terrible things uh, and some quite self-indulgent and narcissistic things. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of actions uh, in Shelley's life which to us look quite questionable. I think his treatment of women 
on the whole was quite disgraceful. I also think it's very interesting that nowadays we would probably describe Percy Shelley as, you know, the husband of Mary Shelley. Like, I think yes, it's really he's interesting much more that... famous than he is. Yeah. Well, people, yeah, know, her... people know what she produced, you know. Yeah. I mean, and it's kind of interesting at the same time that, um, like, Lord Byron, who was, you know, having numerous affairs, is the father of Ada Lovelace. And Byron and Shelley tend to sort of, like, smell a bit mildewed as if they belong to another era and they're, and they're, and they're a bit dusty now and a bit pale and faded and yet we've got Mary Shelley with Frankenstein kind of completely revolutionizing popular culture and completely stimulating our debates on science and technology and culture and then we have uh, Lord Byron as the, as the as the father of Ada Lovelace who was this muse of, of, com- of computing terrible word muse I could wish I could think of a better <laughs> one but I'm talking you know she's 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 the founding figure of, it doesn't of, sound of like something that would come out of the Romantic movement. No, not at all. But I think they had a very odd relationship to science and technology. I think they were opposed to the idea of reducing the human to the mechanical and reducing the notion of human experience to mechanical physics. They hated Newton, for example. Shelley and his friends were from very privileged backgrounds, weren't they? They, they didn't. This was a luxury to be able to like, oh, I'm so emotional. Ooh. And they weren't having to worry about how many turnips they could get that day to feed their family. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, he's born to the landed gentry. He goes to Eton, where he first starts writing poetry. Then he goes to Oxford, where he gets sent down within, you know, six months for, for co-authoring uh, an atheist pamphlet. Sometimes rebellion requires a certain amount of indulgence, certain amount of, of money from home that allows you to... And, and I think, in a sense, you know, if we look at Shelley in Soho, we're very much getting that experience because he gets sent down in disgrace. His father is furious with him. He, so he can't, he decides he's not going to go home. And he rents uh, a couple of rooms at 15 Poland Street. And for six months, he's living in these digs, basically. And originally he was there with the, the, the co-author of this pamphlet, who actually did go home to his family, whereas Shelley didn't want to. And his father was demanding that he go back to Oxford and, and, and apologise. And instead, he decides he's just—he's got no money. He's really broke. It's, it's a bit like common people, at this point. He's yeah. doing common people in this in this sort of small freezing flat, writing poetry. He, he, at one point, he complains in a letter that you know he goes to bed at eight o'clock, and and then sort of gets up early and writes more poetry. Although another account written by someone who knew him claims to have found him sprawled on the street in Leicester Square at five in the morning, right. uh, passed out. <laughs> <laughs> being laughed at by a bunch of street urchins. And and I think he was having, at the risk of sounding condescending, I think he was having like a, a, a little adventure. Yeah. You know, it's almost the equivalent of running away from home. And it led to uh, him meeting his first wife, Harriet Westbrook, who felt sorry for him, basically. And uh, they, they eloped. So he's gone by August. And did he reconcile with his family? I don't point? think he ever did. I don't no. think he ever did. No, because he, you know, basically he was cut off. And of course, eventually, uh, after he's married Mary, one of the reasons why they 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 go to Italy is to is to escape his creditors. And then died in Italy. He did indeed. Um, at the, he was about twenty eight, twenty nine. He'd gone sailing, and there's various accounts of what happened: either that they were attacked by pirates, or he'd fallen overboard, or the the ship was rubbish and it was never going to be 
seaworthy. Um, but anyway, he, he disappeared at sea, and then later his, his uh, body was washed ashore uh, at a little place called Via Reggio, uh, which is kind of like a little Italian Bournemouth now. And this is one of the things about romanticism is it thrives on myth. It just devours myth and, and, and sort of generates new myths. And Shelley had been writing a poem called Adonais to mourn the death of John Keats, whom he'd known. Keats just died of consumption. So he writes this, this poem. Then he disappears at sea and his body's washed ashore. Apparently a lot of the flesh had gone from the face and hands. And at the time, there was, there was a concern about plague and about uh, you know, corrupting bodies, rotting flesh. So the body is burnt on the beach. And this, in turn, becomes this great romantic image of almost like this funeral pyre. There was a guy there called, I think, Captain Trevelyan, John Trevelyan, who was a kind of adventurer, minor poet who was friends with Shelley and Byron. Uh, Mary Shelley was there. A guy called Lee Hunt, who was a kind of literary critic figure was there Byron apparently stayed but got so turned off by the by the experience that he left very quickly <laughs> um and and now this is where this is where we go into the the, the land this pure myth pure legend the the story is that the heart didn't burn and that I believe it was Trevelyan kind of reached into the embers and pulled out Shelley's heart and presents it to uh Mary Shelley it's mythic. There's no other word to use. And so the heart sort of disappears and then it kind of miraculously re-emerges, supposedly um, wrapped in a, in a copy of um, Adonais um, in, in one of Mary Shelley's uh, uh, desk drawers. Uh, and now it's, it's in a church somewhere near Bournemouth. Does Shelley have a definable legacy? As I said, I, I think now his influence is, is um, prominence. Uh, is completely eclipsed by by Mary Shelley. You know, I think probably more people have read Frankenstein than have read um, uh, his modern, uh, his Prometheus Unbound verse drama. Pretty pretty safe on that one, I think. But I was going to suggest reading a little bit of Shelley's poetry because I think that there is something about the truth of the emotions. I think there is something about the direct communication of feeling and passion. And this is, this is a poem he wrote in, in 1818, so it's only a few years uh, before he died, only two or three years before he died. And he wrote it having, because he's in Italy, he, he hears about the Peterloo Massacre, he hears reports of the Peterloo Massacre. So he hears about workers in, in Manchester being, being chopped down by the, by the British Army. And he writes this poem, The Mask of Anarchy, which is it's quite long, I'm only going to read some of the first few stanzas. But it's not what you associate Shelley with. It's not, you know, it's not Skylarks. It's not West Winds. It's angry and it's brutal and it's direct. To me, it feels like a Cold War Steve cartoon in verse. He mentions some British politicians. Um, I'm not going to tell you who they are. But basically, they are, you know, home secretaries, foreign secretaries, chancellors. Put your own names in. You don't really need to know who they are. Just, just substitute for anyone you can think of right now. Uh, and I'm going to read it to you now. I met Murder on the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. Very smooth he looked, yet grim. Seven bloodhounds followed him. All were fat and well they might be in admirable plight. For one by one and two by two, he tossed them human hearts to chew, which from his wide cloak he drew. Next came Fraud and he had on, like Eldon, an ermined gown. His big tears, for he wept well, turned to millstones as they fell. And the little children who round his feet played to and fro, thinking every tear a gem, had their brains knocked out by them. 
clothed with the Bible as with light and the shadows of the night, like Sidmouth next hypocrisy on a crocodile rode by. And many more destructions played in this ghastly masquerade, all disguised even to the eyes, like bishops, lawyers, peers, or spies. Last came anarchy. He rode on a white horse splashed with blood. He was pale even to the lips, like death in the apocalypse. And he wore a kingly crown, and in his grasp a scepter shone. On his brow his mark I saw. I am God and King and Law. Thank you.